You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Seth Black, who is running Flask and Python in production to power a web comic site called Talius. Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks. Really happy to be here today. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site, even going as far as how to pronounce it? Absolutely. That's actually the very top thing on the about page is how to say it because I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> um, yeah, it, the website is talius.com. I started this site maybe 12-ish years ago, 2008, 2009. And the idea is just stick figure comics that was just a simple way of you know getting funny things out of my head and i was looking for weird names to call it and the word uh, talia is a, a latin word that means stick so talius is like the the plural accusative form of stick which was just a really weird you know conjugation in latin i thought it was really interesting and funny and it was a kind of a novel word and a short domain so I could scoop up T-A-L-E-A-S dot com very easily. Um, and people pronounce it all over the place. Talius, Talius, Talius. So there's there's no wrong way to say it. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I took a quick look at the site before we recorded the show. For some reason, it reminds me a little bit of the oatmeal. Yes. Uh, the oatmeal and XKCD were two. They were just getting started and getting big when I was starting to. So I was reading a lot of that. So I tried to mix some of the, the nerdiness of XKCD with just the irreverent humor of, of the oatmeal without going as far as the oatmeal goes in terms of, you know, the he, he tends to go a little extreme. So I, I pulled that back a little bit, but that's also my personality. Right. You created that whole entire website yourself, right? 10 years ago? Yes, I did. Yeah. From HTML, CSS, all the way down to the, the database, backend code, APIs. So day one, you've been using Flask on this? Oh, absolutely. How's that been so far? Fantastic. I've, uh, I've used Django a lot, and Flask, for, for the purposes of this website, just was exactly what I needed. Just simple templating, simple views, just simple routing, nothing crazy, and it has done exactly what I needed to do. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. So before we get into the details about like you know why you chose Flask and things like that, do you want to maybe just start us off a little bit with what type of traffic the site gets so we kind of have an idea of what we're working with? Absolutely. So it's kind of ebbed and flowed. Um, I've got Google Analytics up. I think I put Google Analytics up around 2012. And then before that, I was just using Webalizer, but who knows where those logs went. Traffic on webcomics is variable like crazy. So you'll get spikes, you'll get on the front page of Reddit and you'll see, you know, 20, 30,000 visitors over an hour. Um, I got picked up by IFLS. I got about 15,000 visitors that day. And then a normal day, you know, you might see one or two people trickle in just off of random Google searches. So since I've had Google Analytics up, I have 149,500 unique sessions um, or unique users across about 170,000 sessions. Those I've got real clear spikes. Like in 2014, we have a 15,000 user day. In 20 late 2015, I think that's when IFLS got me about 20,000 visitors there. 
2017 to 2018, I did a lot of SEO work. So my daily average was up to about a thousand visitors a day. Um, and then Google made a change and my traffic has fallen to about 300 visitors a month. So extremely dynamic range of, of visitors. And then in terms of actual hits, um, during peak times, we would get around a million hits a month. And right now I'm down to about 30,000, you know, actual asset pulls every month. But I also have a CDN in front of everything to help help lighten the load against the server and pretty heavy caching. Right. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very well-rounded amount of stats, you know, at all different levels. Oh, heck yeah. And then for uh, those heavy traffic days, you know, when you're on the front page of Reddit or something like that, how was things holding up server side? Was your server exploding or was it just like purring like a kitten? Purring like a kitten. I've, I, I've used the same uh, general stack pretty much my entire career as to throw a load balancer and a caching server in front of everything for those spikes and, and put just like a, a quick cache, like a five second cache in front of everything. So that, you know, if you make changes on the back end, it's going to take, oh goodness, five whole seconds to update the website. But what that does is protect you from, you know, a huge spike in traffic. And so you're getting 20, 30 hits every second and your, your load balancer can definitely sustain that. You know, Nginx can handle that. No problem, especially just spitting out from a live warm cache. And, you know, then you can guarantee that you're only going to hit the backend server a few times every five seconds. Right. And we'll definitely get into that a little bit later on. But uh, for now, you mentioned, you know, 10 years using Flask from day one. Did you look at any alternatives along the way? And have you ever looked at even different languages along the way and, and just always reverted back to Python? Or how did that go? Um, personally, yes, tons of times. Uh, during my day jobs over the past two decades, um, done PHP work, Java work, Node.js work. I will say explicitly, I'm not a fan of Node, even if that is polarizing opinion. Don't like it. Um, Ruby, Ruby on Rails, and I, and a little bit of Go more recently, and I always fall back onto Python. Cool. So I guess uh, the real question here is like, if you rewrote your webcomic site from scratch today, would you still use Flask there or no? Absolutely. Nice. Always cool to see that because like, you know, 10 years is a long running project. A lot of people, myself included, it's like, you know, maybe you start working with something for a year or two or three. It's like you suddenly start to get bored or like something else comes along. But it's nice to see long-term commitment. Oh, yes, absolutely. Flask, out of all of the tools that I use, like Flask has, has been a very consistent thing. Even my day job today, if there's a new web-based application that I need to build, I'm going to do it in Flask. So going back to the webcomic site, is this uh, a monolithic app or do you have it broken up into microservices? Uh, of course, the most annoying answer ever, yes. It is both monolithic and microservices. Um, it has the main the main content part of it, which is just the the web comic you know generator or whatever you want to call it the the views for web comics as well as an administrative site and both of those are are inside of the same project. Outside of that, I have my own analytics package because Google Analytics and Webalizer don't exactly give me the stats that I need. So outside of that, on Amazon, I have a couple of lambdas running that will give me the exact stats that I need, more real-time data, filter out things that I don't really want to see, like as cool as it is to get a thousand visits from a random Russian blog, like that's not exactly my target audience. So that's awesome for Google Analytics, but not good for like my SEO purposes. Right. So you have two independent services running? Correct. Okay. 
can you give us like maybe a high level overview of like what is the scope of this application in terms of like lines of code or like you know models or whatever just some type of metric all right there's about 15 database tables that get tied into models and i i hand coded all of that stuff um just because it's it's not that complex i mean it's a generally static website and then loc let's see if i can pull that up real fast i know i had that somewhere just under a thousand lines of code okay that's actually a surprisingly pretty small amount oh yes again that's what i love about flask is I don't need to write a bunch of boilerplate code just to get a simple view up and running or to turn on caching. Like that's just a couple of decorators and we're off to the races. Yeah. Speaking of caching, are you using that uh, Flask cache library or no? Yeah, I have, a, I have a couple of levels of cache there. So yeah, Flask's cache is the first thing on the view state. And then behind that, um, between that and uh, and my, my database server, I, I throw Redis in there. So you have Redis also working as the, the backend for Flask cache? Yep. So these two microservices, if you want to even call them that, do you have them in separate Git repos? Yeah, they are. And then you can deploy them independently, I guess, too, as well, right? Exactly. Because, yeah, the, the, the statistics and analytics packages that I, I've built don't really need to be changed that often. I'm, I'm working on the website weekly. Like, it's, it's well over a thousand commits at this point. So, you know, every week, every two weeks, I'm doing something on the website. Whereas with the analytics, you know, maybe every month or so, uh, even if that much, I think the last change I made was in December of this year, just adding some like some Tor endpoints that I wanted to block. So when it comes to rendering the site itself, are you using server render templates with Jinja or do you have like a, you know, a JavaScript front end with an API backend? Uh, all Jinja. Yeah, Jinja works great for this, especially for SEO purposes. Back when this thing started, Google wasn't very good at at reading Java JavaScript rendered pages. So Jinja works fantastically for that. So everything looks like static content. I even went so far as to like add the extension.html into all of my endpoints. Oh wow. Yeah, that that brings me back to the olden days, right? Where people used to use what was it? pound exclamation point to, to do some type of JavaScript stuff for SEO. Totally. And I, I started doing that in the very, very beginning to see if I could get Google to do that. But then, no, it's, it's not worth it. Just render the site the way you want the users to see it and the way you want it to work and an easy way to share pages. And then Google will reward you for that. Right. Now, you mentioned having like uh, an admin backend that you use to, I guess, publish your new comics. Uh, did you spend a lot of time implementing that? Oh, yes. Yeah, I spent a couple of months on that one. Um, it started out as just a simple, you know, upload an image, upload a description, good to go. But there's a lot of stuff that I, I wanted to do, especially for SEO and for caching and stuff that I need to turn on and off per comic. Like when I'm working on a comic, I don't want it published, but I would like to see what it looks like on the site. So I can unpublish things so they don't show up in the archive. They don't show up in the in each specific comic category. It won't show up on the homepage. And I can turn off the cache on it as well so that it doesn't, you know, I've got a five minute cache, a 10 minute cache, all of those. So if I'm working on the copy of the website and I misspell something, I don't want to sit here for 15 minutes waiting for a cache to clear out. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Very cool. Yeah. Cause I was talking to some other folks and you know, it's kind of like a, a mixed bag between people who invested a lot of time creating their own admin dashboard or backends versus people just, you know, basically just writing queries and then committing them to like version control and just running those directly. Yep. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And that's it. When it started, it was that, but there's something to just having an admin system that I can log into from wherever I've got my, my database server locked down pretty hard. 
So it's if I'm on vacation or something or wanting to publish, I publish every Sunday and I'm trying to really get into doing that consistently. So if we're out of town or whatever, I still want to be able to do that. And so I can grab a laptop, grab my phone and just do that. Whereas if I've got a database query that I've got to run or a CI CD pipeline that I've got to edit with, you know, an XML or a JSON file, that's that's too much work for me. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, given you've been running this thing for 10 years, you have plenty of time to create an admin dashboard. Exactly. Right. Now with that admin dashboard though, did you hand roll that or are you using with something like Flask admin? Nope. Hand rolled. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of hand rolling the admin dashboard as well, because like you say, it's like you have these very super specific things for your application. It's not just a simple like, oh, I just want to make a CRUD interface on this database table. Exactly. And that's that's something that I've, I've struggled with a lot is you, you build a simple CRUD admin interface and then you need a couple of drop downs for this. Oh no, wait, I need a toggle for this, but this actually isn't in the database. This is a cache clear button. And then a, a simple out of the box solution just stops working and you end up spending more time fighting with the out of box solution than you would have just coding it up in JavaScript and writing a few JSON endpoints. Yep. Yeah, I couldn't have said that better. That's like exactly how I, I think about that as well. Now, I went to your archive on the site before this call and I just started scrolling down and I noticed you're using some type of like infinite scrolling. Uh, yes, for the images. That was an attempt at lessening the load on the, the CDN whenever people go to the archive because everybody likes to go to the archive page, but they won't scroll through it. And I'm I'm over 110 comics now, I think, which isn't that bad. But when you're loading them and loading them and loading them, that page would just kind of drag and it would drag the server down and it would drag the UX down on the website itself on the client side. So I went ahead and added some code in the back end that lazy loads the images and the descriptions as you're scrolling. So you'll actually get the entire page rendered for you, but it won't load any of the assets or the content until you get down there. Oh, nice. Yeah, I didn't even realize that as I was scrolling. I thought it was just like a typical, you know, like an infinite scroll type of deal. Yeah, no, it definitely loads the full page because I, I want that part of it because I, I don't like the infinite scroll where like you see the footer or something and then you try to get down there and then it jumps and then you scroll some more and you're like, ah, is that ever going to end? So there's there's clearly an end to this page. It just, all the assets don't pop up until you get, get to them. Right. Are you using uh, WebSockets anywhere on this site? Um, on the admin side. Oh, do tell. Yes. So uh, I have a like a, a real-time editor to edit the content of the site. So I crack open a WebSocket there and uh, every few seconds it will sync what's in the editor to what's in the database table for the description and the story of each comic. And that is overkill. I did it because I wanted to. Yeah, no, that's really cool. It reminds me, uh, I don't know if you've ever uploaded videos on YouTube or whatever, but their setup is a little bit similar to that. It's like as you're typing anything, it just auto saves for you kind of. Yep, exactly. And that's that's just another like, you know, I hate hitting save a million times. And I when I'm writing, uh, I tend to just stream of consciousness. So I'll just start typing weird stuff and then go back to the page and stare at it for a few minutes. So stream of consciousness, push save, wait, go back. Like that was a weird workflow. So just having it auto save just mindlessly works for me. Yeah, for sure. I don't know about you, but I definitely have some form of like PTSD of just, you know, writing out something really big in like a text area for some forum. And then like, for whatever reason, the browser crashes or the request doesn't go through. And it's like, I just lost like 15 minutes of writing. I will call out a very specific piece of software, Microsoft SharePoint. 
that really that does that that has done that to the world since it was first launched and we still use sharepoint to this day and it still will do that you will type out an entire form and there's no save button anywhere and it will log you out there will be a timeout and all of that work just went away and that feeling of like oh i've got to do it again yeah it's the worst yeah a lot of those pages that don't even have the save button like before i submit it i almost always just like control a control c just copy the whole thing exactly so going back to the site we know we're using flask we know you're using nginx and redis do you want to talk maybe a little bit more about the rest of your tech stack like what database you're using are you using docker and things like that yes yes and yes so the database is Maria. I'm on, I think, one of the tens right now. I've, I've pretty much stuck with MySQL. Um, I worked as a database administrator in AT&T for years. And um, yeah, I've always been a huge fan of MySQL specifically for websites. It For all of the features that it was lacking you know, 10, 15 years ago, it does one thing really, really well, and that's pull information from a table and spit it out to be rendered. And that's really what you need a database to do on the web. Like, you know, in triggers and cool stored procedures, that's really fun from a DBA side. But from a, I want my web page to load in under 200 milliseconds, like all you want to do is pull that content and spit it out. So MySQL did that fantastically. And then when Maria split off of MySQL, I took the Maria route and it has served me very, very well for years. Yeah, that's good to hear. I think... Uh... Yeah, I'm trying to think back of previous episodes. It's probably not quite a 50-50 split between MySQL and Postgres, but it, it's pretty close. Like a lot of people still definitely use uh, MariaDB specifically. Oh yeah, and that's exactly what I was saying. Like Postgres is fantastic if you need he- like PostGIS or if you need just some real heavy lifting on the database side, like you know, you're doing geospatial stuff or you're doing financial number crunching and you want the database to be able to handle that kind of you know, informatics, that's awesome. And I strongly recommend it for those situations. But just for a, it, it's a goofy web comic with images and text. And that's all I want to pull out of the database. So yeah, the most stripped down database is MySQL Maria. And that is, that is what I need. And so that's what I use it for. Right. I've already forgot like what your nav bar looked like, but did you have search implemented or no? I don't. It has been the number one most requested feature and I just haven't gotten around to doing it yet. Right. No, I think you did have, uh, what did you have on the bottom? You had a whole bunch of different tags there to like kind of categorize stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I've got all the comic categories lined up. So under each comic, I'll have the categories. And at the very bottom of the entire site, I have all of my comic categories lined out. So it's easy to kind of click around. But what I've learned over the past decade of working this website is people will come expecting a certain comic. Like my most popular one is the shark one. So people will come to my website and be like, cool, where's the shark comic? And I'm like, oh, you've got to go to the archive and scroll down until you see it. Like that's not a great user experience. Right. Yeah. I would think search would be pretty useful. It's weird though, because like I run a blog, not a web comic. And it's like, I think after running this for five years, like three people asked me, hey, you should add like a search to your site. It's one of those weird things where it's like, it seems like it's going to be the most useful thing ever, but then it ends up being not that useful in practice, but maybe for web comics it's a little bit different. Uh, when people start coming to your website looking for something specific, you also get good insights. Like if you put some kind of like analytics on your search bar, you can see what people who come to your website look for. That's I've implemented that on lots of websites that I've built in the past, and that actually answers that question. Like specifically and frequently asked questions. If you have 
like for product sites or for SaaS sites or whatever it is, if you have a, a nice search bar, you'll see what problems crop up before people start telling you about it. Cause they'll go to your website, go to your search bar and type in, how do I restart it? Or how do I reset my password? And you're like, oh, people don't know how to reset their password. Yeah, for sure. And like in a weird way, in the reverse of that, it's like if they search for something and there's no results from that search, it's like suddenly you know exactly what to write about next. Correct. Now, expanding on your tech stack, I would like to talk a little bit more about Nginx because it sounds like you're using, and correct me if I'm wrong here, are you using Nginx Plus, like their paid solution or no? I am not. I'm just using their stock off the shelf free solution. Hmm. Interesting. And I only bring that up because it's like you mentioned uh, caching, like at the web server level, like at the Nginx level. I kind of thought that behavior was limited only to Nginx Plus. Nope. You can definitely use that. I have, I use Nginx as a reverse proxy into my application server and you can build a caching layer on top of that and just store the cache in a, in a flat file database on the, the Nginx server itself. And it can pull those resources into memory on startup and start serving those assets immediately. Wow. That's like a, a game changer because yeah, I mean, like you said before, being able to just cache the entire response of the page, like the entire HTML entirety and uh, being able to serve that directly for five or 10 seconds or however long you want it is like awesome for reducing load on, on the Flask server. Oh yes, absolutely. That's That has saved me. And anytime I see somebody talking about their website, getting a hug of death from Reddit or Hacker News, that's always the first thing I think is, ah, if you had just you know put that one directive in, like it's three lines of code and you would have saved all of that hassle. Yeah, and it's crazy too, right? You think like, it, you would have to do something super complicated to get that protection, but it's like, yeah, a couple lines of code and it's like just like 10 seconds or five seconds. And like, that's enough to prevent death. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that, it always breaks my heart when I see that. Yeah. But uh, speaking about Flask servers, I don't think we covered this. Uh, which application server are you using? G-Unicorn, Uwisgi, something else? Yep. G-Unicorn. And it works cool. fantastically. Um, and I spin up about, so yeah, we can, we can start moving backwards that way into the stack. So everything lives inside of Docker containers and I'll spin up three worker threads inside of the Docker container and then put two, uh, I have a little Docker swarm cluster. So each virtual machine will have two Docker instances running inside of it. So I'll have six, uh, for all intents and purposes, threads or processes running to be able to handle requests. And that's just more for, you know, fail safe in case, you know, one of the Docker instances explodes or one of my VMs dies, there's something always there to be able to handle a request. That's my paranoia, not necessarily like, you know, how it should actually work. Right. No, that that's a very good thing to do. Now you mentioned having a couple of VMs here. Are these like VMs that you're managing on top of the server that you've rented out from somewhere? Uh, no, that's straight up just stock um, Ubuntu images on DigitalOcean. Okay. So what made you choose Swarm in the end? Um. Kubernetes was overkill and Swarm, again, with the same reason that I use Flask and the same reason I use Maria, minimum functionality is what I'm looking at with low overhead of, of configuration and Swarm definitely has that one quick SSH session and a couple of commands and I can spin up and spin down extra instances in the Swarm. I can kick instances in the Swarm. I can scale things up and down extremely quickly and it it is fault tolerant enough for my needs. Right. So how long have you been running Swarm in production for? Ooh, I'm going to say two years now. That sounds right. Right. That's a pretty long time. I remember looking back at Swarm around, probably around that time, like maybe two years ago, give or take. And they're like, there was this one issue on GitHub that really bothered me. Hopefully it's fixed by now. 
but it was like something around when you went to update one of the services that you have in the swarm cluster, like it would just result in that service going down and then never coming back up again. And it was like marked as like a severe bug for quite some time. Did you ever run into that one? Uh, I did not actually, luckily. Um, nice. The, Dodging bullets. Right, seriously. I think that also had to do with the way that, that I kick instances. I, I don't update warm instances. I actually will tear it down completely and then just respawn it so that I don't have to worry about Because, yeah, uh, G-Unicorn has that. Um, Docker has that where you can kind of get into the, the specific instance that's running and tell it, hey, kick this one process. I, nah, I just, the whole purpose of using Docker to begin with is so that you can quickly tear things down and spin them back up without having to worry about that. So anytime I need to do any kind of update like that, I'll just tear everything down and spin it back up. It takes less than a second. Oh, wow. Wait, when, when you're talking instances here, you're not talking about the entire DigitalOcean instance, right? No, no, no. I'm just talking about the specific the specific uh, Docker container. Right. Okay. I got like, not worried, but it was like, there's one term around that called like the golden image, basically. Yeah, just tear down my entire, my entire tech stack every time I deploy. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that does work, I guess if you're operating at like crazy, crazy scale, you know, if you're spinning up like tens of thousands of servers. Very true. Then uh, doing that type of rolling restart is cool. But you have one server, right? Uh, two. Two, okay. Yeah, so I've got, yeah, the two two application servers that are load balanced and then two database servers. Actually, there's a little, there's a little cluster running back here. So I've got two database servers, um, one warm standby and then the master server and then one load balancer in front of everything. And one Redis server because Redis, you know, keeps everything together for me. So are you using uh, Celery in this project as well or no? Uh, nope, no Celery. So right now Redis is just acting as the the cache backend? Correct. Yeah, Celery is, or uh, Redis is really cool, right? It's like you can put so much traffic through that and it, like it, it barely just breaks a sweat. I stopped using many tools in favor of using Redis. Memcached. And uh, RabbitMQ and ZeroMQ. I had used those three in tandem for years and years and years. And maybe five years ago, Redis got to the point where it replaced any kind of caching system I needed and any kind of messaging queue system that I needed just out of the box without any weird plugins or strange configuration and was just as easy to use as any of the tools that were made specifically for these tasks. I, I love Redis so much. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a Swiss army knife. Oh yeah, totally. Now, before you hopped on the call, you mentioned that all of this used to be hosted on AWS, but now it's on DigitalOcean. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about the thought process and you know why you chose AWS initially and why you chose to move to DL? Yeah, absolutely. I've been on AWS as long as I can remember AWS existing, like having EC2 instances up and watching their USDs one region fall over a million times up till now when you know they've got regions all over the world and it works fantastically. Um, and it, it served my needs very, very well. All right, so years ago, I was working in New York and I ran into the guys that started DigitalOcean's at a Techstars event. And you know they pitched their company and what they were doing. And I logged into their admin and it is a million times more beautiful and intuitive than AWS's. And they were highly focused on just their instances and making it very easy to get specific instances up and running 
and they valued customer feedback where if you've ever given Amazon feedback on their user interface, they will laugh and say, yes, it is just as difficult for them to use as it is for you to use. And you all just laugh and walk away. Whereas DigitalOcean was really, really passionate about that, that user experience of their website and of their admin panel. So they gave me a couple hundred dollars in free credit and I have not looked back since then. Yeah, that's nice to hear. Like I used DO2 since about not quite that long ago, but at least four, four or five years, something like that. It's been a while, but awesome service and totally agreed about their UI. Even nowadays too, right? Like they're branching out from just providing like a VPS now to other things, you know, managed Kubernetes, managed Postgres. And yeah, the UI is still pretty easy to navigate around. I was on the public beta for spaces and I was very excited because that was the last piece that I couldn't move over from Amazon to DigitalOcean was my, my S3 bucket because that's how I, uh, I reverse proxy into my CDN to pull assets uh, for the, the homepage. And there was no way for me to build that in DigitalOcean. And when they finally released spaces, because I had been asking for that for a couple of years and they're like, okay, fine, here's a login, go, go use it. And since that day, I have not been relying on AWS for any of the, the front end assets. It's amazing. And I was real, real happy about Spaces. It is a little bit more expensive than S3. I'll throw that out there. Not a lot. It's like five bucks a month. And my traffic is maybe an extra 20 or 30 cents where I was paying less than a dollar on Amazon. But I mean, I'm not running. I'm not running Amazon or Google or anything at scale like that. Like it's my small web comic. Um, but that, that was something that actually, you know, when you're paying $130 a month for your servers, you know, an extra five bucks, you're like, well, that's noticeable. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of uh, how much you're spending per month, do you, do you want to go into maybe just like the size of the servers that you're running on DO? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so the load balancer that I have is just the, uh, the two, gig, two gigs RAM, 50 gig disk, uh, two virtual CPUs. Um, my app servers double those with a little bit larger disk size for my caching, for my, you know, just caching of assets that I need to do on the back end. And then my MySQL is the 8 gig uh, RAM, 128 gig disk, uh, four virtual CPUs. Everything seems to hold up pretty well, like just a light buzz when I'm looking at the, at the networking and looking at the, the CPU usage. Nothing usually jumps up above 30%. Right. When you look at those numbers, uh, the graphs that DigitalOcean gives you on the back end, like what is your database server usually sit at in terms of load? Um, let's look at the list. Because your server sounds to be a little, sounds to be pretty beefy. Oh yes, it is. So something that I haven't mentioned yet, this runs my entire Seth server network, which also includes a photography website, my personal website with my blog on it, those kinds of things. So all of those websites will hit this database server, not just Talius, but Talius is by far its its biggest. Uh, yeah, it's hanging out at 10% right now. Oh, nice. Yeah, plenty of room for growth. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's you, you'll see the spikes when you see traffic spikes, like it, it'll jump up to 30, 40% when, when the, the website's humming. Right, and I'm also happy to hear that I'm not the only one who runs multiple things on like one server. Like I run this running in production site my website and like the course description pages for like five different courses all from a single DigitalOcean server. It's kind of nice to be able to do something like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's the the selling point for running your own servers is you can you can add to them at your leisure. Yep. Now, you mentioned 
You said you were using Ubuntu on these servers. Do you know what version you happen to be using? Uh, yeah, I've got these numbers right in front of me. So the app servers and the database server are trapped on 16.04, and I recently updated my load balancer to 18.04. Nice. Are you preparing for the update? I guess it's going to be next month or two, 2.20.04? I am. The The load balancer is usually the one that I update the most frequently because it's it's public facing. My app servers and my database server and my Redis server don't like, I, I let those guys lag for a while or until it starts to hurt, then I'll, then I'll update them. But that was, yeah, they were on 12 for a long time. And then I finally got around to getting them to 16 and I'll probably pull everything up to 20 when it comes out, you know, I'll this summer i'll get bored and update them all right so what do you think your upgrade process is going to look like for that for the database server and the load balancer it's it's a little bit more painful i usually will just spin up a next a server right next to them and go ahead and just have a fresh install of everything do a full backup of the server and then and then restore on the other one and then slowly start moving traffic from one to the other i have the the, the pleasure of being able to to hot swap database servers because I'm not writing real time to my database instances. I'm I'm the one generating the content. So if I'm not in the admin system editing anything, I know nothing's getting written to the database server and everything's just read only at that point. So I can spin up a, a second server, start pushing traffic over to it and then put the, the old server into read only mode, make sure nothing dies, take the old server down and everything's good. For the application servers, it's way easier. I'll usually just update them and then just point the swarm master to the other servers and everything's good to go. Right. Yeah, that is a very nice luxury to have when you can control all of the rights to your application. Yep, exactly. And I've had I've had um, a few times my application servers have, have gone down and you'll the way I find out about it uh, DigitalOcean will usually send a note and we'll say, you know, the hypervisor for this box went down. We're sorry. You know, we tried to restore it. It didn't restore. You had some weird custom configuration that we couldn't figure out. I'm like, no problem. It's fine. You know, my secondary server is taking traffic anyways. And then get home that evening and just spin up another server, say swarm, go that way. And, you know, within five minutes, everything's back up and no interruption of service to the website. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, you mentioned having uh, the load balancer on a separate server. So does that mean then you're not using DigitalOcean's built-in load balancer service or no? That is correct. They did not have the load balancer service when I first started. And I custom configured all of my websites with uh, before CertBot um, or Let's Encrypt came out. I was handling all of my, my SSL certificates. Um, I was using GoDaddy for that. And they didn't have that really nice load balancing system that they have now. And then when they started working on it, they didn't support Let's Encrypt. So that was another like major, ah, let's not do it that way. And now I'm just kind of, I'm happy with my load balancer. So I haven't tried to move everything over to theirs. Right. Yeah. I was just going to ask you then, like, we know when you do the update to 2004, is that an opportunity for you to maybe opt into using their load balancer? Or do you think you'll just keep things the way they are because nothing wrong with it? Uh, I will probably keep things the way they are because ain't nothing wrong with it. And B, it gives me something to log in and play with every few months. Right, just in case you get bored and want to mess with the production system. <laughs> exactly. Take take down five or six websites. I, I still have that opportunity. Right. Yeah, you definitely don't want to give that up. <laughs> Speaking about messing around with things in production, how did you configure these servers? Did you just like 
install everything by hand or did you use configuration management tools like Ansible or something else? Um, configured everything by hand and I still do things this way. I, I'm a big fan of Terraform now and Chef and Puppet, I, those are interchangeable in my mind. At work, uh, on my day job, I totally use those tools. Uh, for Seth Server and Talius and all of my personal projects, I just store configuration files in GitHub and write a few bash scripts that will just log into the server, do a diff on the config files if anything changes uh, SCP, the new file up or whatever, and uh, kick the server. And those those scripts are so old. Like those are probably 15 years old at this point. And Bash hasn't changed much in the last 15 years for me to even need to touch those. Right. Yeah, 15 years. That's like getting pretty crusty. But hey, it's awesome that they still work. Oh yeah. No, I've got I've got a few projects in GitHub that that are extremely old, and they're just you know Bash scripts like that, or just you know some small Python scripts that. I might have ported from two to three barely when three came out and just have no need to touch because they worked and the world hasn't changed that much, even though we think it has. Yeah, that's always funny. It's like, and I'm totally guilty of this as well, right? It's like you think of things are six months old or a year old. It's like suddenly it's like, ew, you need to replace that. But it's like, no, it's like now's the perfect time to use it and for the next five years because it's super stable. Exactly. And a lot of these things I've battle tested so I know they work and there's that on the other side of that, you know, as I get old and grumpy, they're like, I don't want something new. What is this? What are you new whippersnappers doing to me? Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, Python 2 and 3. Did you upgrade your app to use 3 now? I did. That was that was a painful. I think I did that around 3.4. So that was, yeah, I, I knew that was going to happen. I mean, Python 2 was end of life January of this year. And at work, we still have Python 2 stuff. Um, a few of the open source projects I help maintain still have legacy Python 2 code in them and a pile of users who refuse to get off of it. Right. Yeah, it's been a long, long upgrade process for that. Uh, I think Python 3 came out in 2008. So yeah, we're yeah around the time that I started working on Talia. So I definitely started it in like 2.6 or 2.5. Um, and no, like... Everybody who's listening to this, please port your code to Python 3. You will, Your future self will thank you. It will be painful, but you'll be happy in the end. Yeah. So actually, uh, future self is a really good term. That's something I think about too as like a solo developer. You know, there's that saying around like, what can you do to make your future self more happy? So, but related to that, like what have you done to kind of stay on track and, you know, develop this application for literally a decade? Um, I love it. That's that's the the being good to my future self is that like it's Talius has been my escape that that's the whole purpose of the comic. And if we zoom out a little bit, not just technically like, yeah, I get to log into production systems that are running and get real traffic every day and play with it without worrying about anybody yelling at me. But just drawing the comic and putting out my own content and just being able to play with these things like they're they're my toys. So that's that's the thing that keeps me going like it's. It's a project that has seen me move all the way across the state of Texas, move jobs numerous times, and it's it's kind of always there for me. So it's made it very easy to just maintain. Like there's never been a drudge where like over the years where I've been like, ah, forget it. I'm just gonna delete Talius and just never do it again. Like it, every time I think about it, I get happy. 
Right. Yeah, that's that's awesome to hear. As like a fellow content creator, I guess I hate that term completely, but someone who puts stuff out on a regular basis ish. Yeah, it has to be your passion. Otherwise, it just doesn't work long term. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, people may disagree, but I think I'm hilarious. So I go through the comic all the time and still giggle at my comics. That's that's kind of my litmus test for putting something out. I'll I'll sketch it up in my sketch pad and then look at it a few days later. And if I'm still like, <laughs> I'm dumb then all right, that's a good one. We're, we're going to publish that one. Right. So is that how that process works? That you have to vet it yourself before you decide to pull the trigger and make it public? I do. That, there's, that was my vetting process for a long time. And now I've added my wife to that vetting process. So she'll, uh, I'll draw it out and sketch it up and then, you know, take my laptop over to her and just show it to her and look at her face. And, you know, it's, it's a instant feedback she'll either start laughing or giggling or say exactly like you're dumb i'm like all right cool that's that's a good one or she'll just kind of stare at it for a few seconds and as soon as i get that reaction i'm like nope this one's not funny don't use it right so i would imagine looking for the reaction of like head down squinted eyes a little bit and just like shaking your head but while smiling a little bit like that's probably a thumbs up that is that is exactly what i aim for like the, the light head shake with the smile, that's like, I don't want the big belly laugh. Like there's plenty of comics out there that do that. Like, and that's also not really my sense of humor. Like my personality is very just the, the shake head and smile and go, ah, Seth. Yeah. So going back a little bit to Europe, uh, what does your deployment process look like? Like, let's say that you want to just have some code on your dev box and now you want to get it up in a Docker swarm. So it's live in production. Walk us through it, please. All right. It's very simple. Uh, I'll branch off of my master git and make my couple of changes. Cool, we added something new to the footer. Commit that guy. I'm very, very much of going back to the being good to the future self. I document this this app very well. So my git commits are actually real sentences and declarative sentences. So add new feature to footer, you know, to support new Google change or whatever it is so that I can remember and I can go through the Git log and actually know what was happening. Um, commit that guy, uh, push it up, merge it myself. I break that cardinal rule because there's only one dev. So I always approve all of my, my changes. I have a CI CD process that will run a pile of test cases, which is also extremely, extremely important even if you're a solo dev to have test cases so that you don't break something stupid because that's what you do. You'll go add something and you'll muck up a tag, you'll forget to declare a variable or you'll change a variable or you'll misspell a variable and you won't think about it and then you push it to prod because it's your project and everything falls apart. So I have some test cases that run that make sure the entire website continues functioning. Once those pass, I have a hand-rolled bash script that runs uh, in a Docker container on Git, GitHub and that will log into the database server, do a diff on the schema. Then once that's good, if, if it needs to do updates, it does those updates for me. Then it will log into the, uh, let's see, the app servers. We'll kick uh, the, the swarm. We'll put the new images into swarm. Um, after that, it logs into the the CDN puts any new assets it needs to in the CDN. It just does a diff. I think I use SCP for that one. Um, and then those files will sync uh, back to DigitalOcean. And then at the end of all of that, it will kick the load balancer. And I think for Talius, it does an actual restart. It doesn't just do a quick reload um, just to make sure that the cache is clean and happy when we start. 
and all of that is completely automated. So from the moment that I push merge, I don't do anything else. Right now that merge though, when you push it up, are you pushing it up to GitHub and then it's like remotely deployed somehow, or are you actually pushing it straight to your server? Uh, to GitHub. So GitHub is the, is the tool that I use to deploy everything. Right. And then like one of the last pieces of uh, your CI CD pipeline is what actually moves files over to your actual server, right? Correct. What, uh, what CI service are you using? Uh, I'm using GitHub. Uh, what's, who did they buy? Oh, GitHub Actions? Yeah, GitHub Actions. There you go. Very cool. Yeah, that's still a fairly new technology. I, I think it just came out of beta not too long ago. And I had been using just a, a Docker instance on one of my application servers to do all of this. Um, uh, GitHub Actions has made that so much easier. Yeah, I still haven't played with it yet, but it's on my to-do list. Like the next time I need to implement some type of CI service, I'm going to be looking at Actions for sure. Now, when it comes to dealing with things like secret keys and you know API keys, things like that, how do you deal with those? Ooh, that is a great question because this is something that I've struggled with my entire career. So for Talius, I store all of my secrets uh, in an S3 bucket. No, no, in a space on DigitalOcean, encrypted at rest. And one of the very last steps of deployment is when I'm building the Docker images, it will actually reach out to that space and grab those keys from that. It's just a, a JSON file and pull those into the Docker image set those up as environment variables, and then trash the uh, the file after that. Hmm. That's an interesting approach. How does that work, though, a little bit like in development? So let's say you're working on the app, you introduce a new key or something like that. Do you then need to update that in two spots? Uh, no. So for development, uh, everything on my box is completely insecure. So I have full root access to the database server. There's no authentication or authorization anywhere. So when I'm deving on my box, everything works perfectly fine. And then I auto rotate my keys every, I'm gonna say 45 days, it might be 45, it might be 90. Um, on deployment, uh, it'll check the age of the key and if it's too old, it'll generate a new one for me um, based off of another project that I'd worked on that generates Unicode random strings. So I actually haven't touched that in years. Um, that's just, it's worked for Talius, and there's also not a lot of authentication authorization. I have a few keys and secrets that I need to maintain. So that's been working fairly well. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. Like I'd probably use Amazon KMS or something like a real robust actual key management system to do that if I were to do that part again. Right. Now what, you just have things like the Flask secret key and maybe like an admin username password? Uh, Flask secret key, um, database uh, username password, uh, secrets access key, and uh, I think a GitHub SSH key is, is all stored in that guy. Oh, right. And that actually, that leads into a question that I almost forgot to ask here. So are, are you using any other like external SaaS tools? Like how do you send emails out and like error reporting and logging and things like that? Um, error reporting and logging are just the flat file off of, uh, off of the actual Nginx server. I ship those out to a, a DigitalOcean space every night uh, around 2, 3 a.m. I'll do backups and go ahead and spit out those log files and then just process those by hand on my computer whenever I need to. So like, you know, webalizers work perfectly fine for that. Um, for email, I do things a little differently. This is more of a like Seth's weird opinion kind of thing. 
I'm not a fan of the like well formatted, like beautiful email with a header and a picture of people smiling and dear valued customer, we would like to thank you for your continued support in our business. Like, ah, that that doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy. So I actually handwrite all of my emails in Gmail and then just use mail merge with just email address and send them out that way. And I don't have a large enough mailing list. I think I think we were doing the math the other day. I would need 15,000 subscribers uh, to like actually hit a point where Gmail would throttle me over a week of sending emails. Um, so I'm obviously nowhere near that. I'm in the low hundreds. So it's not that painful to just have a, a Google sheet with my email addresses in it and type it up and then push mail merge, go. And those, you know, 200 whatever people get that fairly custom little quick note from me. Right. Do you have that set up then on your site where someone can sign up to get notified when new comics come out? I do. It is hidden at the very bottom of the page where nobody sees it. <laughs> right. But hey, you still have a couple hundred people signed up for it. So it must be doing something right. I do. It, and that actually it's worked fairly well for me. What I have learned is the people who sign up for my mailing list are also typically people who will follow me on Instagram. So my open and click-through rate is extremely low, but my engagement rate on those emails is extremely high. Like I sent out my last email, I send out my emails on Monday, I'll publish the comic on Sunday, send out the emails Monday morning, and I'll always get a few responses like, haha, yeah, I saw that, it was hilarious. And I'm like, no, you didn't, you didn't click on it. And usually they're just somebody who saw it on Instagram, you know, the night before. Right, that's pretty cool. So do you actually have uh, like an RSS feed hooked up too or no? I do. I have RSS and Adam both hooked up. Um, that one actually generates a, a nice little trickle of traffic for me um, from just people who subscribe to the RSS feed or Pinterest. I have the RSS or yeah, I have the RSS feed hooked up to a Pinterest board. So every time I publish a new comic, it throws it up on that Pinterest board, and that will actually get me you know a few dozen clicks every time I push out a new comic. And then over time, um, I think that board gets I think seventeen or eighteen thousand views a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. I always thought Pinterest was kind of dead. Like I always get annoyed when I'm doing an image search and I'm like, oh, that's the perfect image. And then I click the link and it's for Pinterest. And it's like, oh, by the way, you can't see this image, but Google can. Right. And then, oh, click on this link and oh, the link is 404ing. And oh, uh, yes. But no, there's still, my mom definitely uses Pinterest very heavily. My wife uses it. I use it lightly to promote my comic. It's, it's still alive and kicking. Nice. So speaking of alive and kicking, let's talk about the opposite of that. Uh, how have you planned for disasters and like unexpected events? You mentioned you do a little bit of backing up of your logs and things like that, but like how do you back up your database and use, well, not so much user-generated files because you don't have any, but yeah, like what do you just do in general? Uh, lots of things. So everything gets backed up nightly, including the database server. The database snapshot's actually getting kind of large. It's I think like 50 or 60 megs at this point. Um, and then that gets shipped off to a space, uh, encrypted at rest, so that guy's safe. Um, I rotate those every 30 days so I don't have like a 10-year log of database you know, history that I don't need. Um, all of my comics I back up onto Dropbox. So all of my digital assets that I have are all on Dropbox. And then all of the code obviously is on, on GitHub. After that, everything else is cache and I'm perfectly fine with losing. But yeah, like configuration files and all that stuff are all backed up on a nightly basis. Yeah, very good to hear. Now, what about other types of like unexpected events? Like if your servers just happen to get shut off from DigitalOcean's point of view and they come back on, will things just automatically come up on their own? Yes, no. 
So yes, sometimes they do. The swarm has given us the most issues when DigitalOcean will kick a hypervisor. For whatever reason, the swarm just does not like to come back to life. Um, the load balancer, super happy. And the database server, super happy. You can kick that guy a thousand times a day and he'll just come back on. And DigitalOcean, again, I've, I've, I keep complaining about how amazing their customer service is. We've lost the application servers multiple times over the past few years. I don't know, eight years or however long I've been on there. Every time they've notified me before I found out that the website was down. Yeah, they're really good about that. But uh, do you also have like things hooked up on the DO side when it comes to like alarms and alerts? Because I know they have things where it's like, you know, send me an email if the CPU load is greater than 80% for five minutes, things like that. I do. I've got their billing alarm set up. I have their CPU alarm set up. I have uh, ping alarms set up. Yes, all of those because, yeah, you never know what's going to happen. Usually the only alarm that I'll get is, again, the, the hug of death alarm on the load balancer when you'll get a weird CPU spike. I think I do a diff or like a delta on the CPU. If it jumps more than a certain percentage, then let me know. And that's... It, it's always been, you know, oh man, Reddit, you know, our web comics picked me up and, you know, they're loving me all of a sudden as opposed to downvoting me into oblivion. Right. Yeah. Downvoting to oblivion. That's basically Reddit in a nutshell. It, it is. Sometimes. It, 99% of the time. And that was a discussion my wife and I were having the other day. My, uh, my Pi Day comic for this year, like took off on Instagram, did really well on Reddit. And I didn't think it was that funny. Neither did she. She was like, you need to do something for Pi Day. You're nerdy. You like this kind of stuff. All right, cool. So I just threw one out there and was like, eh. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, it's the funniest thing ever. Uh, a week later, I put out a comic about my AI bot that I think is hilarious and crickets. Right. Immediately to like negative 10, like 28% rating. Yeah. Downvoted to the end of the earth. Downvoted into oblivion. I'm like, wow, like they did not like this one. Yeah. So when it comes to your site being unresponsive, you know, we talked a little bit about alarms and alerts. Do you have any other services checking like the site itself, like pinging talias.com to make sure you get a 200? I used to use Pingdom for exactly that, but that goes back to DigitalOcean's response, responses and responsiveness. Like, nah. Um, knock on wood, the website hasn't gone down for years, so I didn't really see a need for that. And I have a large enough community now that if the website does go down, again, 100% of the time, DigitalOcean lets me know. In that weird instance that, you know, I might not find that out, I'll get pinged by somebody on Instagram or get a quick email that, hey, man, your website's down. I, I, get, I get bug reports. I got one a few weeks ago on like the Samsung Galaxy, whatever, whatever phone the comic was shifted over just a little bit. I'm like, whoa, like you stare at it that much? It's my comic and I don't look at it that much. That's amazing. All right, I'll fix it. So I, I kind of rely on the community to do that for me. Right. Yeah, that's awesome that you built up a large enough of a community to get that type of feedback. Seriously, I, that's it's weird. Again, that goes back to I think I'm hilarious, but I don't expect everybody else in the world to, you know, share my sense of humor. So it, it, it I get taken aback when somebody's like, yeah, I love it. It's it's great. It's funny. I'm like, whoa, what? You think it's funny? <laughs> me too. Yeah, that goes back to that one, what it was at a blog post or a book about like 1,000 true fans. Have you ever heard about that I one? I have. Yep. Just need 1,000 people. Yep. And I'm, I'm at least 998 away from that. Yeah. A couple more. 
So what would you say is some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this application over the last decade? Um, the um, Obviously, the most important one is, you know, you have to do something that you're passionate about. Like if I did not love this project, I probably would not still be doing it. So passion is by far the number one thing. And that will get you through the weird like fighting through an Nginx configuration or fighting through porting your entire code base from Python 2 to Python 3. Like if, if you don't have that that prize, that goal that you're like, yeah, this is I love it. So I want to keep doing it like you'll get discouraged and disheartened and give up on it pretty quickly. Yeah, definitely. Passion goes a long way because those things just become like a means to an end, you know, getting past the technical hurdles. Exactly. And then on the technical side of things, like choosing the right tool for the job, like I was talking about using a KMS, you know, for storing keys and how specifically I picked a database server and a caching server and why I use Flask and why I use um, Jinja too. They, they solve the problem that I have and nothing more, nothing less. So picking the right tool for the job is, is, is a fine art in and of itself. And when you do that, you don't have to change with you know the times. You don't have to jump from technology to technology because, oh, that was the new thing, but now it's been abandoned, and here's the next new thing. Like standing on these technologies that have been around for a long time and will continue to be supported and maintained and moved forward so you don't have to do that. Yeah, very well put. Now, maybe talking about the opposite of best tips, like do you recall any mistakes that you made over the years that maybe you've corrected and learned from? Oh, tons. Um, all right, so for the second hour, we're going to talk about things that Seth does wrong. <laughs> uh, sticking with technologies that didn't work. I, I started in the very beginning by trying to build like something fancy. And the first version of the website that luckily didn't see the light of day did have like a, like a web services back end with a, a JavaScript front end. And I was using, oh man. Yeah, it was like jQuery and a couple of other things and because they were hot at the time and picking the tools that were like, yeah, this is going to be awesome and great and a million people are using it and it's buggy, but that's okay. And I can jump in on these open source projects and just getting distracted with the new shiny, the exact opposite of what I just said a few minutes ago. Um, that burned me and wasted a lot of dev time and was actually really discouraging. Sticking with the simple basic, you know, helped a lot. But I definitely did that wrong. And mm, let's see what else. Uh, also chasing weird things. Like I, I tried to add like a like a comic generator to the site because I thought that would be funny. Like trying to build things that your your users aren't asking for. Like I, I'm ashamed right now that I haven't built the search because p numerous people have asked me for it. And every month or two, I'll get a new request from a new person. Like, why isn't there search? I was looking for this. Um, nobody was asking me to write a comic generator and I spent two or three months writing this really cool comic generator where like you, it would let you like put stick figures or put some of my little characters in and type in my, my custom font, like something funny and it fell flat. That was another one of those downvoted into oblivion on Reddit and nobody clicked on it and nobody cared. And even when I showed like friends, like, Hey, look at this. They're like, meh, whatever. So not wasting your time building something that nobody has asked for or wants. Yeah, very well put, because it's so easy to get caught up into things like that, because it's like, wow, it would be so cool if that feature were there, but yeah, suddenly that doesn't work when it's released. Yeah, you, you get to chalk it up to good learning experience, and I, I figured out how to do all this cool, awesome, fun stuff, but then in the end, did anybody want it? No, and then you're like, oh man, and then you get to just demoralized, and yeah, no, definitely not worth it. 
Yeah, but hey, at least you walked away learning some new technical tools that you can apply to things that people do want. So Seth, on that note, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you very much. This was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great talking to you. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, Instagram, GitHub, things like that? Yes, absolutely. So the website is talias.com. That's T-A-L-E-A-S.com. Um, if you want to check out some of my weird open source projects, uh, most of these actually relate to Talius or how I how I do SEO or anything weird like that. Um, um, GitHub slash Seth Black. And my Instagram is Seth Black ATX. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.